Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Well, I want to welcome everyone. This is uh, Ambassador Jenkins. I want to welcome everyone to another of the WCAPS Vive series podcasts. This is the first one that I'm doing in 2020. Um, So, you know, it's a really an honor for me to welcome uh, to the podcast uh, a, a, a woman who I met, I guess, maybe two or three years now, and she's on the advisory council of WCAPS, and um, she's, very, she's very energetic, and she'll tell you about the many things that she's involved in, um, and I think a lot of you listening may, may, may know her. Um, her name is Pam Campos. And uh, I'm going to let Pam introduce herself to you. And then we're going to just kind of go through some some questions so you can get to know her a little bit and what she works on. Um, Some of the issues that she is specifically, um, you know, concerned with and, you know, things that we want to see happen uh, in 2020 and and in this decade. So, uh, Pam, uh, you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, yeah. so excited to be here, um, excited to be part of WCAPS. Um, so yeah, my name is Pam Campos. I'm a political strategist and a consultant, and I focus on um, the intersection of peace and security and grassroots movements um, or protecting democracy, I like to say. Um, I served in the Air Force uh, for 11 years as a military intelligence analyst. Um, and yeah, energetic is a good <laughs> way to put it. Um, I uh, organize. I organize um, for peace and security. Great. So, Pam, tell us where you're from and and a little bit about you know where you went to school, so people can get a a better sense of uh, of of your background. Sure. Um, so, I uh, am originally from uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up in a, a working class town right outside of Boston. My mother is an immigrant from Honduras. Um, and I'm also part Guatemalan. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, growing up, I was very interested in school, um, but didn't know anyone who had been to college. And uh, my mom is the one who encouraged me to enlist in the military. Um, she really wanted me to serve in some capacity. Um, and she also thought that it was a good route for me to get college education and money for college. Um, so yeah, I enlisted right out of high school and I remember I chose the intelligence career fields only because it was the longest school. I really knew nothing about it or nothing about the military. Um, and I had my military career and it wasn't until I went from active duty to the reserves that um, I went to Portland State uh, University in Oregon uh, for political science. And then later I went to NYU um, for uh, an MPA in international policy and management, um, much more of a hybrid international development, um, foreign policy degree. Okay, and what what led you to Portland, Oregon? 
Yeah, um, I mean, my, my story, I feel, and my path is full of just taking big leaps. And I think, you know, when you, I think many of us who serve in the military, it does also make you nomadic. So um, while I was in the military, uh, so I deployed twice. Um, I served in uh, Germany, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Kyrgyzstan. And at the latter part of my active duty career, um, uh, I broke my rule of not dating anyone in the military. And uh, my partner was actually serving in the uh, a special tactics unit in the Portland National Guard. Um, and so I took a leap um, and I was actually recruited from a reserve unit out in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so I moved uh, cross country, not knowing anybody. And I think that the, the military politicized me um, and I just became very interested in politics. I became very interested um, there was a really important moment for me where I was in a deployed location and there was um, one of those news panels and they were discussing women in combat. And the panel was all white men over 60. Um, and only three of them had even served in the military. And so I just became very interested in who tells our stories, um, what is political and what is not political. And so um, I moved to Portland to continue my military career and get a political science degree. And uh, how did you like Oregon? It's one of the states I have not been to. Have you been back since you graduated? Yeah, I, so I was actually just there this past weekend. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, so I still have family there, friends. I loved it. I mean, one of the biggest things that Oregon gifted me was um, a true understanding for, for environmental issues. Um, it's a state that is really, I think, on the cutting edge of, of environmentalism. And it's where, I mean, I, I tell people that I started organizing, community organizing in the military, but it's where I really got involved in politics. So I, it's a very politically active place. Um, and I became very invested in the immigrant rights movement and working with farm workers. So very diverse um, in terms of uh, politically diverse rural urban. Um, I will say, I mean, Portland, even though it's so progressive, was also very white. And so even though I, for me personally, I had left the military, I was so starved for communities of color um, in my own community. And so that was something that I found challenging, but it also just made me more curious about, you know, uh, organizing um, our communities. And so what led you to New York, uh, a very different uh, environment in terms of diversity? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, what led you there? Um, I, um, grad school, I um, was very interested. So I was very, I thought that my path was gonna be going to the UN. Um, I became very interested in um, just international politics. Um, essentially, I learned a lot in my undergrad program around politics domestically, and I think it still informs the work I'm doing today, which is how do we link the domestic with the international, especially when so many communities of color inherently have international ties and security impacts us. So 
I looked at programs to lead me to the State Department or the UN, and um, I chose NYU because of the diversity of the city here. Um, it's one of the few cities that really is governed by majority uh, leaders of color. Um, and yeah, I was just really interested in the program's practicum. Um, it's one of the few graduate programs that isn't a thesis, but is like a capstone consultancy. Um, so, so yeah, that's what brought me to New York. So um, I just, I'll note that I was also in the military. I, I joined a little later in my life uh, when I was actually in law school and uh, I actually started in the Air Force and then I ended up switching to the Navy. Uh, and I worked on, uh, I was in a JAG at first, mm -hmm. and then I went over to uh, Navy Intel um, and, you know, have always been happy with the military. I, I was there for 21 years mm -hmm. um, and retired. So, um, you know, one of the things that people often ask me is, how do I think the military shaped who I am now? And uh, in what, you know, when you have a lot of different experiences, it's hard to know which one did what because <laughs> um, you look at it all as one big one big uh, all these experiences kind of merge but I wonder if you've ever thought about how the military has shaped you and made you the person you are now mm -hmm. yeah I mean I, I think about it a lot um, because it was such an impactful um, experience for me personally I um, I grew up with a real sense of service. I mean, my mom, as an immigrant, she's also a nurse. Um, community service was just a very big topic of my life before the military, but then in the military, um, it was something I took very seriously. And so, yeah, on the one hand, I think it deepened my service. Um, and on the other hand, you know, as an enlisted person, as a woman of color, um, I recently testified to Congress about diversity in the military. And one of the things I named is that not dissimilar to many other institutions, there is problems, structural problems when it comes to equity and inclusion um, and uh, toxic leadership. And so I, I was very impacted by how much people said, well, the military, you know, um, there's, there's specific instances where I fought for equality in the military, which is maybe <laughs> um, as an enlisted person, not something you hear about a lot, but I'm very interested in, um, you know, when I was in the military, I saw people not upholding the core values, um, people not acting in service. Um, and just because they had the uniform on didn't, you know, make them infallible. And what does dissent look like in an institution like that? And so it shaped me to care very deeply about power, um, about who makes the rules and who gets punished for it and who doesn't, who gets to get away with it. Um, and it inherently gave me, I think as a person of color growing up where I did and how I did, I had a sense for security before, but as an intelligence analyst, it definitely sharpened and gave me a lot of thought around peace and war. And so the work that I continue to do today is very much uh, informed by that experience. So let's talk about what you do today um, and what led to that. Um, tell us a bit about what, you're, what you do now and how you got into 
your line of work? Sure. Yeah, so um, I have my own uh, consultancy. Uh, so like I said, I'm a political strategist and organizer. And so I partner with organizations, grassroots organizations here and abroad, um, legislative offices and even political campaigns, specifically answering the question around um, peace and security, right? Uh, what is a grounded human-centered foreign policy connecting um, that vision with domestic issues. And most importantly for me is how do we organize a constituency around foreign policy? How do we make foreign policy an everyday people's issue? Because too often foreign policy feels very far away, perhaps elite, perhaps I need to read all of these books to understand why I care about nuclear weapons, why I care, how is climate you know, tied to the National Security Council? Um, and so for me, I see a really big important role um, for grassroots movements and foreign policy to play together. Um, and a lot of what I do is narrative strategy with those folks, um, but also organizing strategies. And for me, particularly, it's organizing war affected people. Um, and so in my work, it's organizing military veterans. Um, in an anti-war movement or veterans who care about human rights or racial justice, um, veterans organizing alongside refugees and migrants. Um, and more recently, the work that I'm doing is working across borders. And so I have a very big interest and I do a lot of work with um, transatlantic partners. So other multiracial democracies that are worried about authoritarianism and climate change um, and social unrest. Um, so how do we build global movements um, for a stronger, you know, stronger transatlantic relations, but also a stronger peace and security? So what are some of the challenges you're finding in doing some of this work? I mean, I know in my areas of work, which has been Web of mass destruction, which has been particularly challenged in the in the, in in ways in which we connect with the everyday person mm -hmm. on these tough issues, and and I'm wondering when you're doing your grassroots work on these different issues, how does that happen? I mean, and is it different when you're working with veterans? I mean, I would assume most veterans, being one myself, um, are a little more aware or follow it maybe cl closer. I'm assuming. You know, I'm taking it from me, but I'm in Washington, so I'm not a good example of this. But I would assume that, at least for veterans who you work with, there's a little bit more of a comprehensive understanding about the issues that you're talking about. So how do you, what are the challenges working with veterans versus um, just your average person um, in, New York, who, in the U.S. who's not in D.C. or New York? Um, how do you help them see why these issues are important? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's many issues and challenges. And I think um, I often say that I kind of stand in the gap. Um, I see myself as kind of a bridge builder and building the bridge between, you know, foreign policy think tanks and very DC concentrated world, um, grass tops, I would say, and building the bridge to grassroots movements um, who are already battling so many different issues, community protection, right? Um, it's, it is difficult and it is 
deeply necessary. And the places where it is difficult is that both of these historically, so one thing I'm also very interested in is that historically, um, these two sectors, foreign policy establishment and grassroots movements, have been allergic to each other and even hostile to each other, right? Um, the security apparatus has not been friendly, you know, to many different movements um, uh, that have challenged power. Um, and movements have not really trusted um, the grass tops. And so that in, in itself is very difficult. It's also difficult when there has been such an antiquated ideology that foreign policy is a very specialized knowledge, right? You have to be a very serious, very smart, very educated person in DC to know what's going on with foreign policy. And, you know, um, I think, I think there's been a very monopolized knowledge and monopolized tactic of writing white papers and white papers and white papers. And, you know, my mom works three jobs, low uh, minimum wage jobs in Boston. She cares very much about international relations. And, you know, do we expect her to be reading these hundred page white papers, right? Who are we targeting and who are we leaving out? Um, and so, so that is a lot of work that we need to build, um, to build understanding, inclusion, um, and the opportunity is that people are ripe for this. Um, I talk to people in Georgia, in Texas, in Montana even, and a lot of them are not vets, um, who un understand that we are living in an ever-connected, globalized world and are also afraid. They understand that violent extremism is real. They understand that climate change is happening before their eyes. They even understand disinformation and cyber insecurity. Um, and there's no way they can miss the conversations around China and Russia um, and even our transatlantic, you know, NATO partners. Um, so, so it is full of challenges. And I think the biggest one for me personally is that the foreign policy space, I mean, you know, WCAPS is the antidote to this, but the foreign policy space is very white and very, um, it, the foreign policy space is very white, very male and has long not been grounded in a race class analysis. Um, and so for me as a woman of color leading in this space, I feel like sometimes I don't belong at the foreign policy expert tables and I'm seen as a military veteran at the grassroots tables. Um, and to answer your question, uh, some vets are very plugged in. What I have found in my field research um, and work is that the stereotypes around veterans have also stifled us. And so largely veterans of color, queer veterans, women veterans take off their veteran hat. They put it on a shelf and they don't really wanna think about it. They wanna to go to school, they wanna start a business, um, even though they have very sharp instincts. And so a lot of my work has been to re-enfranchise and build leadership amongst those very specific veterans who can help us tackle um, this work. And I wonder, you know, with, with the election coming in 2020 and there have been, you know, so much bipartisan, um, so much um, not part, nonpartisan or, or partisan, <laughs> so much partisanship in politics and, you know, in, in also around the country with, you know, this, this feel of, you know, you have to take sides and everything. Um, how has that 
impacted your work and or 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 another way of looking at it is has is twin is the fact that we're having an election this year i mean how is that made you made it harder or easier for what you're trying to do um making it uh difficult to find people who can bridge who find the value of what you're trying to discuss rather than figuring out whether you belong to a particular party i mean has it made it more difficult for what you're trying to do Mm -hmm. um yes and no um i think yeah, I, I think that there's an important conversation around like the asymmetrical polarization of this moment. And I mean, one big thing that's alive with me is that we are in a political moment that is not business as usual, right? It is not just, you know, a two party system that is very antagonistic and you have to pick sides. We also have seen corruption in our government. We have seen frankly, corruption in both parties. Um, there's a lot of people who are disenfranchised and depressed that both parties do not offer accountability, vision, um, and real trust with especially <laughs> the most impacted people in our country. And so I think on the one hand, the crisis we're in is that we're, we've been leaderless, um, especially in, in this recent era but the opportunity, you know, I often say that wherever there's crisis, like it lends an opening for leadership. And I think that one of the opportunities here is that lots of people feel activated. Um, we're living in a moment where we can't just let all of the fancy people in DC do everything for us, but we have to save ourselves. We have to organize, we have to get informed, we have to build bridges. And what, for me in my work, what I've seen is that, um, yeah, a lot of people are just um, infuriated with broken systems and want to demand better. And we've seen it in 2018 where so many, you know, women, women of color led victories. Um, and even women that didn't win went on to massively shift the political landscape in their districts. Um, and are running now again in 2020. So beyond just the presidential, there's lots of down ballot activity that is exciting and we're shifting. I mean, as the demographics of our country have shifted, we're also demanding that power shifts as well. And so, um, you know, I think that for a long time, apathy and a lack of civic engagement has really hurt us. And so I'm getting a lot of hands raised from vets, um, refugees, and people that care about foreign policy um, saying, I don't know what to do, but tell me where to go. <laughs> and I think, you know, why I love organizing with vets is that we've been trained for this. We've been trained to mobilize. We are very attuned. Um, and so vets are really actually the best organizers. Um, last week I went to the border with a group of veterans and it just reminded me how how well we are we were trained to mobilize and so um and the other thing is vets find a lot of solidarity across difference um and so that's the opportunity that i see um it doesn't come without challenges but um it's the time to roll up our sleeves and a lot of people are willing to do that I know you mentioned, you know, we'll just briefly to 
some of the other challenges and how many other women of color are doing what you're doing right now? How many, I mean, when you're doing your work, how many other women of color are at your side working with you on this? Oh man, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I wish so many more, but the reality is it's not many. Um, I think, I mean, we know this, that uh, there's a deficient, there's, there's not enough of us in the foreign policy world. And um, in the grassroots world, there is a lot of leadership uh, from black and brown women in particular. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I've learned is just having a title doesn't really mean power or leadership. And so even in grassroots movements who are really, you know, women of color are the lifeblood of grassroots movements. Uh, there's significant deficiencies uh, in power, in leadership, in ownership over the work. And I've seen a lot of burnout. And so um, oftentimes when I'm in convenings with foreign policy experts thinking about, for instance, the election and, and politics and constituency building, there's very, very few that, um, uh, that operate as I do or are thinking about the questions I am. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not many. So, um, but I mean, I, I, you made a good point about how much these women are the lifeblood of, of the work that needs to be done. So is it challenging finding ways to empower, to continue to empower them or to help them? Because I know you said they reach burnout, which makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, how, have you found ways to keep empowering them so that they stay committed to it to fight the, despite the fact that it really can burn them out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that for many of us, the stakes are different. Um, when we talk about um, it, so in my work, one of the biggest things I'm fighting against is um, in our country currently, it is up for debate who gets to be an American, um, right, patriotism, um, conflated with nationalism. These are some of the big questions um, of identity that are up for grabs. And for many communities of color, we instinctively and intimately understand insecurity, violence um, on a global scale and then in our communities. So for many of us in grassroots movements, we have, it is not a theoretical exercise, it is very real on a deeper level. And I think that we, survive, frankly, through connecting with each other. Um, I mean, there's not a day that I don't think I would be able to keep fighting if it wasn't for other black and brown women reminding me what's at stake and also uplifting me and uplifting each other. Uh, for me, that, has, that is not sustainable. Um, I have personally put a lot of work into what does accomplices and allyship look like to be more sustainable. Um, and that has been encouraging, I think. Um, but also what does sharing power look like? Um, if we are leading movements, <laughs> um, then fundamentally women of color cannot be taken for granted anymore. Um, if we're so intricately connected to 
answering the hardest questions around peace and security, race and class in America and in the world, um, and multiracial democracies, then um, it's a failure to, to allow us to you know, do the whole whisper network sustainability model. <laughs> um, and I think what's exciting to me is several of us are, are pushing for that. Um, and I think this election cycle has shown how different women have um, tried to turn the tide on that. So let's turn, you know, for these last few minutes, let's turn to 2020. Mm -hmm. And um, what is, what are, I'll give you two. What are two things that you'd like to see, um, you most like to see change with this new election uh, for new president? Um, and not, and maybe not, the, I mean, just whether it's a change in, maybe it's change in issues because well, Congress or president, I mean, not, if, not necessarily getting into, who it is, but what would you want to, what do you, what do you want to see changed in 2020? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the opportunity, um, so one big thing that I think is a divergence still for many, especially, especially in foreign policy, um, is the question of, do we go back to what was before this administration? or do we build something different? Um, and so what I most hope to see is, um, like I said, through great crisis comes a great opportunity. And the opportunity I see in 2020 is for us to chart a new bold path forward. Things are bad. Like we are at rock bottom in so many um, areas uh, regarding defense, uh, corruption, insecurity, uh, social unrest. Um, you know, the United States has dropped in the democracy um, scale. Um, and no matter what happens in this election, the question of how we repair our, you know, international alliances and reputation is a big question. So given that we are at such a low, what I really hope to see is for, especially in the foreign policy community, um, we stop being afraid. Um, we stop being, um, we stop overlooking the fact that we must have a race class analysis in security. <laughs> um, it is jarring to me that sometimes there are issues around um, communities of color, um, you know, immigration, and we have yet not as a community done a good enough job of being able to thread the needle around race, um, and security. So for me, one of the biggest hopes is that we let go of our fears, let go of respectability, and really we need to have vision in foreign policy, um, regardless of who, you know, wins the election. And the second thing is um, connecting, um, trusting that everyday people are smart enough to care about foreign policy. Um, 2020 is the opportunity for us to connect global issues and issues of security and defense, uh, peace and security to domestic issues, right? Um, there's more and more Americans who are deeply concerned about the defense budget um, and don't understand the ins and outs of it. Um, there's people that are fatigued with war and um, that correlates to what social programs we can have in the United States. Um, and so there is a 
big key question around who we want to be internationally and who we want to be at home. Um, and we need to link those two issues um, because we're going to see debates and debates and debates. And every time we're going to say, oh, they didn't spend enough time on foreign policy. Well, if we, the foreign policy community, are not making the case of linking them to domestic issues, then we too are failing. Um, and so, yeah, uh, those are my two <laughs> um, not light uh, hopes for this year. So um, what do you tell um, young people, particularly young girls of color, uh, people of color, um, when you see them about, um, about America today, um, if they, you know, if, you know, they don't have the context, um, you know, they're young, they don't have the context of, you know, what America, um, I mean, right, what America was just like three years ago, some of them are younger, um, you know, what do you, or, or even those that, are older. I mean, what do you what do you tell them about the U.S. today and what we're doing? I mean, in a way that um, keeps keeps the light that you know of the wonderful opportunities that there are in America and what we still stand for, even though we've taken a punch in some ways. Um, how do you what What do you say if they want if you just want to keep them positive? Um, even when a lot of us are, are dealing with some of the things you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think a lot about the ways that particularly women of color leaders are, um, one, it's, it's hard to get to leadership, right? I just had a conversation today with other foreign policy women of color, um, and we were asking like, you know, are we invited because we have real expertise or are we invited as tokens? Um, and then when you finally prove yourself as a leader, um, it's easy to get knocked off um, because you have to be perfect. And so my greatest hope for us is that we build as many leaders as possible and that we make leadership accessible. And so what I tell young women of color particularly is reminding us that no matter what the world tells us, because the world tells us a lot of lies, the truth is that we are vital. We are so needed. Um, our lens, our experience, I mean, nothing beats first line experience. And we have what it takes to change so much. And our leadership is really needed and nobody's going to save us. <laughs> I mean, it really takes us rolling up our sleeves. And I think a lot about patriotism. Um, and to me, true patriotism is caring enough to admit where we've gone wrong and rolling up our sleeves um, to do better um, because we're all connected. Um, and so I really invite young women of color to flex um, to step up, um, to stand out, um, to be free in all of their selves. Um, because, you know, and we're seeing it now. I mean, the youth really is leading um, in so many ways and uh, they need us and also we need them. <laughs> 
Um, and so I just remind people that you can start leading now. You can start uh, making changes now and don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, you know, I know that I prioritize time when young women ask me like, hey, can you help me navigate X, Y, Z? I didn't really have that. And so I will double down. And I feel like, you know, women like you and others in WCAPS are also willing to make the way better for the next generation. Um, and so there's hope. Um, for me, everything ends in hope, hope in each other, hope in what we can do together um, and hope that we won't be alone. Great. Well, that's a, that's a great way to end the session, just talking about hope, because it's always good to, it's always good to end on a positive note, because no matter, no matter what is going on, um, you know, it's, it's important to always remember that things can change and things can change for the better, and that we don't have to, you know, sit and accept. We can keep uh, striving to make things better. Um, so I think uh, ending it on the word hope is great. So thanks, Pam, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's always great to hear from you and, and hear about what you're doing and some of your processes for, uh, what, for what you do and how you are trying to make a difference. And we all appreciate that. And uh, thanks again for, for some words of wisdom as well for our younger uh, women of color who I know also listen to these podcasts. And uh, keep up the hard work. We, uh, we need you out there and we, we appreciate what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. All right, bye. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at wcaps.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPSnet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.